Hey guys, it's Barrett from Sincast. I just wanted to let you know that my audio is a little bit different this week uh, due to unforeseen circumstances. But the episode is just as hilarious as normal, and we're going on with our regularly scheduled program. So enjoy the show. Doesn't he have that nasty song about fucking? That's what BTS should do. <laughs> Welcome to Sincast, presented by CinemaSins. All right, everybody, welcome to the Sincast. This is Chris Atkinson from CinemaSins, joined as always by the voice of CinemaSins, Jeremy Scott. Hello, that's me. And from Music Video Sins, Barrett Share. Hi! Yeah! <laughs> Barrett's into it. Barrett knows what I'm talking about. Oh, hi. Uh, today, we're going to be back to the old school here. We got <laughs> our usual format and everything. I guess what we would call our usual format. I don't think it's officially our usual format, but it is something we do a lot. We're uh, usually <laughs> unusual. Yes, yes. Um... So we've had, uh, you know, what, we did two months of brackets, maybe a little bit longer. Um, mm-hmm. uh, it lasted from the before times to the now times. <laughs> and uh, uh, so you guys surely have to be pissed off about something. I feel like I'm taking crazy pills. I'm as mad as hell. You've never seen me very upset. Lord Jesus. Lord Jesus. I am maybe only the millionth person um, to point this out, but I sure am tired of every single commercial being in these uncertain times mm. or in these times of uncertainty. Mm-hmm. Please buy Pepsi. Right. <laughs> or make sure Preparation H is behind you or whatever. <laughs> like, like everyone is trying. Like, I don't, I, I might need a commercial or two like that from maybe a handful of brands, but like mm-hmm. not every brand. I don't need Peter Pan peanut butter knows your family is struggling right now. Yeah. That's why we are still making peanut butter. Like kind of realize what your product is, right? You know, you, you can't just go in and assume that you're doing anything for COVID whatsoever. It's just, yeah, it's just, it's almost like clickbait, right? It's shameless glomming on, to an issue then they spend hundreds of thousands of dollars on commercials these big companies like they're spending money to market off of this it's kind of gross if you think about it for too long honestly it's not only Uh, gross it's annoying because you're watching big brother the challenge (laughs) fucking like top chef and then all and you're in a good mood you're relaxed you're enjoying it and then all of a sudden it's like Bubblegum saying like we wrap our things individually and deliver it contactless mm-hmm. so that you don't get AIDS. Yeah, and and you know I I don't I don't need <laughs> I don't need all that I don't need the Dr Pepper sweet guy to come out and be like we it's just really really kind of skeezy and and frustrating and. I'm. I've had. I'd rather watch those Sarah McLaughlin 
two and a half minutes. Oh, you know, if they converge those two, like uh, in these times, these I, dogs really uh, need homes. I mean, like McDonald's separating their two arches metaphorically to be the distance between us during these. Like, it's <laughs> a dick, dude. Yeah. Oh, anyway, yeah. I mean, and those those ads, those ads could easily just be the same fucking ads they had before all this, and they get the same thing accomplished. I mean, do 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 the does the average cons- consumer go weird that they played the same old ad? They're not even acknowledging COVID in their ad. It's weird. <laughs> oh, maybe, yeah. maybe. Yeah. I just don't think the average American is that smart. And they all no. have the same like soft piano music in the background, like that stock music is going through the roof right now. Oh yeah, <laughs> Jason Poor Siegel's dude. character from Forgetting Sarah Marshall would be making a killing. Mm-hmm. Oh That's yeah, all oh. ominous tones. <laughs> <laughs> um. Yeah, no surprise. Uh, uh, my 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 rant is COVID related as well. Um, I I live in this this sort of new neighborhood, and like um, behind me, there are some people who have moved in in the last year or so, and I don't know them. I don't talk to them or anything like that. Um, but you you realize pretty quickly that not everybody's taking this seriously. And, uh, and like, so, uh, last week people directly behind me had a big party. They had like, uh, at least seven or eight people on their balcony, uh, no masks, nothing with a party going on. Like, like we weren't in the middle of all this right now. Um, they've, they've had at least a couple others since then that maybe not as large, but there, you still hear them outside wooing and screaming and, all sorts of stuff. It's it, parties bad enough. The noise and all the bullshit that that incur that uh that entails. But like to do it during COVID, it's like what is going on here? Is do you guys really? You guys are really in that doesn't matter. It's not going to get me camp, aren't you? Hmm. You're really in that camp at this point, and you're probably looking at people by sight and saying they don't have it, so therefore it's cool that they come over and touch all of my things in my house and drink from my glasses and all sorts of other stuff that's going Jesus. on. Jesus. Um, and, and it wasn't just them. This whole row of houses have similarly aged people. And it seems like there's some new, like you hear cackling somewhere and you go and look over and there's like a party on the balcony somewhere and another house. And you're just like, I mean, is this, is this house going to be death row in like three months? Am I going to, am I, am I, there's going to be some people that I don't see anymore. Am I going to see some weird shit going in and out of that house where, where people are like crying and depressed all the time. I mean, it's, I, I understand the sort of the need to get out there and, 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 you know, be with your friends again and everything. But, um, not in this age. I just, I just don't get it. I don't get how you can risk it just because you're, you're going, when you say you don't believe it, you're going by a, uh, some thin factors that you're just completely ignoring the, the other stuff Yeah. to, to make your party happen. 
where you're like, well, look, it's uh, there's uh, there's nothing going on in this state. Look, it's well, there's nothing going on in this state because of a lot of things that we were doing to prevent it in the yeah. first place. Yeah. And well, for you to go out and do your party now doesn't help that at all. No, and I just went out this morning for groceries. Still a harrowing experience, um, <clears throat> but I noticed three businesses um, while I was out that were open today that have been closed for the last six weeks, a car wash, uh, a subway sandwich shop and a great clips. Hmm. And I was like, man, I'm not going to any of those places. Like, why is your car being washed? Why is that? Who's thinking along those <laughs> lines? Who's like, yeah. God, damn, my, my, my car's dirty. I better go maybe catch a virus and clean that shit. I, I don't want to lose reputation points. For yeah. Dirty ass car. Yeah. My Subaru <laughs> is my status symbol. Oh my God. <laughs> I, mean, I drive a Dodge of, Stratus. Yeah. Part of it is that we have a governor who's decided to take a pretty soft stance on and even suggested some businesses start opening, you know, this month. And uh, it looks like several are. And they uh, won't be getting my money for a while. Yeah. You know, it's the selfish thing of I'm going to live my life. You can't let this affect how you live your life. You know, you should even if there's something out there, it's invisible. And, you know, you got to keep keep L-I-V-I-N. Right. (laughs) And what's what's weird is that I almost understand that sentiment is that you can't you do have to live your life. Right. You do have to uh, continue uh, existing, doing, doing your part and everything. But the, the selfish matter of that is you're putting this, you're delaying this, you're putting this out there for people who may not be as healthy as you. And the more that we do this ahead of time, the longer it's going to last in the long run. And people can't see past their own nose on their face. And this whole, well, you gotta, I gotta go live my life is selfish on so many levels because you're screwing it up for everybody else that's trying to do right like us. Like there's going to be people who I'm going to go live my life and they never come down with it and they definitely caught it and gave it to other people. But mm-hmm. they'll be at the end saying, see, I never got it because exactly. they're asymptomatic assholes. <clears throat> exactly. Yeah. It's the, that's the thing that's that's scary about this this virus is that – you know, there's just there's times where people have it and don't know they have it and never know that they have it and they mm-hmm. can still spread it. It's just like it's just like the regular flu. I hate, you know, like actually comparing it to the regular flu because it's always <clears throat> it's always uh, being compared to it in some way to make things look better than they are every mm-hmm. time. But I mean, the way that I'm saying it is that there are people who who don't really get affected by the common flu that much that go around spreading it. And, um, and that's the reason why we have vaccines so that people can not do that and everything. And, uh, so yeah, I, I, there's part of me, I think if I were back in my like 18 to 22 year old, uh, mode, I, there would have been a, there would have been a past me who would have come out and just yelled at those people and just said, what the fuck are you guys doing? (laughs) And over time, I've just gotten to the point of like nothing matters anymore. So like, I just <laughs> yeah, and yeah. nothing else matters. Yeah, <laughs> and uh, and so like you know, and and I I don't even bother anymore. It's like yeah, if you guys are going to want to have a party and and possibly spread COVID amongst yourselves, you just go ahead and do that. 
Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Hey, I've got a rant about Instant Pots. <laughs> okay. <laughs> what we've, it's, it's the yes. rant we didn't know we needed. Yes. This What's may end up being the most controversial rant that we have of all three of us. I agree. I agree. <laughs> Look, fuck the Instant Pot. Uh, oh. I know there's a lot of people that love them some Instant Pots. Uh, it slices, it dices, it batters, it bakes, and everything. It's supposed to do everything. I swear to God, this thing is supposed to, like, suck your dick for you. And wow. then do, wow. you know, do while, I don't know, sticking a finger up your ass. I've Ooh. seen the commercial. <laughs> You've seen the commercial. No, yeah. seriously, the, the the commercial itself, without with with in all seriousness, it basically says, "Here's what you do: you chop up some stuff, and then voila, tacos. <laughs> That's it. That's the only thing you need to do. I fucking swear to God, it's the, it's the, fucking, it's the commercial. She does pet like baby goat yoga." While the thing is instapotting, and then the next frame you see, she's eating a goddamn taco. And I'm like, no, it does not do that, man. What I mean, it, it does stuff. It cooks rice. It does some sautéing. Not very good. It does some stewing. It does some pressure cooking. I've got one. I've tried to use it. It's very confusing. But because it, it's got a bunch of like esoteric uh, greens and, and browns and blues and and red buttons and stuff like that. But mm-hmm. I started to get a handle on it. Kind of, I uh, suck at. It. But still, it doesn't make tacos. It doesn't make pizzas. It doesn't make. It doesn't make like everything. And the commercials make it sound like it makes everything. You watch home shopping, and I watch home shopping because my wife watches home shopping on a loop when she's home, quarantined. Uh, the, uh, the, you, you see the instant pot. The instant pot. They push a button, and then all of a sudden, voila! It's like it's like uh, I don't know. It's like a four course like craft meal or something like that. It doesn't work like that. It's it, it 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 takes stuff to do it. It takes steps. You have to saute it. Then you have to take it out. And then you have to put other stuff in it. And then you have to put that stuff in it. You don't just do baby pet goat yoga and then, you know, this stuff comes out. I don't like it. I don't like it. And I'm railing against it. I'm, I'm about to throw my Instant Pot out in the street. and run Finally, out. someone with the courage to talk about this. How do you feel about air fryers? You know, I love the idea about air fryers. I've never tried one myself. They're all the rage. Yeah, and I and I think it's fine. Like if you put a chicken in there or something like that, I think it's it's healthier, and I think it's it it, it cooks faster and stuff like that. Uh, but I've never tried one. Mm-hmm. I, I, I like I like regular cooking. I like putting something in the oven, even if it takes three, four, five, six hours to braise or to cook or whatever. That's how you're supposed to do things. Like I've I've got the time I've got I'm the time I sit here I sit here you know sixteen feet away from my kitchen I realize that's not the case for everybody but uh, you know I can I can take care of that if I want to smoke something it's right outside I can go check on it every hour or something like that what if you want your dick stuck for you oh. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't even hear what he said. I said, what if you want your dick sucked for you? Oh, oh yeah, that's right. <laughs> There's no way to answer that question that won't no, get me in not. trouble. No, no, <laughs> it's not. I, uh, I cooked some uh, pork chops on this cast iron skillet. I seared them, and then I put that bitch in the oven. Yeah, and did. then I took it out, and I made uh, a, a pan sauce with the dip. Yeah, you did. 
and like <laughs> nine different things in there, man. There's some Worcestershire and some salt and pepper and some minced garlic and some really minced onion. Put a little, on, there. little mustard. <laughs> um, that was the shit, man. That is not. Yeah, I don't think this Instapot is for me. I don't care if it's uh, controversial. I'm with you. Fuck that thing. Yeah. There's a, there's a certain satisfaction in doing what you just did uh, without me making it gross. You know, to, to make something, to let it go the, the correct amount of time. Now, you know, there's other things like sous vide and stuff like that that actually is kind of cool and keeps it at a, a nice temperature and everything. But, like, there's a certain thing about cooking things right and in the right order and in the right timing where you're like, you know, I get a satisfaction from that. Uh, and I and again, I realize I'm in a different situation than somebody who has to work a 16 hour shift at a hospital or something like that and has to have dinner on for their kids at the, the end of the day. But again, Ensipot ain't going to make them like Burger King or anything like that. Like it's going to it's going to make a stew of some kind. It's going to make a rice biryani. It's not going to make a, a, a fucking like burger and fries. It's not going to make a pizza or a cazone. So, uh Yeah. That's my, does it, that's my right. Does it suggest that you can cook a pizza in that thing? No, no. I mean, it might as well. It might as well. Okay. It doesn't oh, say you can't. Bad hydrate a pizza. Dude, it would be awesome if you just tried to cook a pizza in that thing. <laughs> you just get the dough and, like, you know, throw, it, throw the thing up in the air and all that and put it on the Instapot. Throw all the mozzarella down and the sauce. And then and it comes up perfectly. Yeah. <laughs> and then suddenly tacos. Yeah, then tacos. <laughs> um, so we're going to get on to a uh, topic that we've done before. We have done the heart of the movie. We've got heart. You got heart, kid. That thing in our chest. What scene do we think encapsulates that movie? And I guess... There's some interpretation still to be had with this uh, thing. I think I think sometimes the heart of the movie is is yeah, that's definitely that movie's heart, or this is this movie's best scene. I think sometimes people will think that's what heart of the movie is, but uh, a lot of I think uh, where we've gone with it mostly is this scene. If you took it out the movie's not the same anymore. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, um, and so like, uh, we've done, done, uh, done a few of these. I mean, is this the, what the fourth time we've had this as the main enough topic? that I'm pretty sure I'm going to repeat myself at some point. Soon. Yeah. I was worried about that myself. I was worried about that myself. Um, who wants to start us off? I'll go, uh, just cause I, I only have one good one and I need some time to think while you guys are going, um, uh, uh, parasite. Mm. Uh, the the little eight seed that could from our recent bracket, <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, a movie that I have now seen almost as many times as I have made Ramdan from the movie mm. um, seven, I think. Damn. Um, <clears throat> there's a lot of scenes in that movie that I think if you took them out, might slightly alter the movie. Uh, but it's that final scene where the kid w- has what I'm. I'm convinced is a vision of earning enough money to buy the house and letting his dad out. Um, and then explicitly cutting back to show, in my opinion, that it was just a vision. It's never going to happen. That's the heart of the movie. Not just, not because of the kid, but because of the movie's themes of how society 
dictates who can and can't change economic status. Uh, and they're of such low economic status, he's never going to earn it. He had, the society has no ladder for him other than what they just went through of deception. Uh, there's no ladder for him to climb out of his societal place. Um, and that's the theme of the movie is that some people are just fucking stuck there and it's not their fault. Not, it has nothing to do with who they are, what they're capable of, what they try. Um, they're just put in a position that society will never let them out of. And I, and I think if you take away the last five minutes of that movie, uh, if you just end it with, oh, he's in the basement, some kind of monologue credits uh it's not the same at all even though the themes run all the way through the movie yeah that's my submission if the housekeeper the former housekeeper didn't show up they would have been good to go right that is that is you you mentioned besides the thing that they just went through they're making enough money collectively at this point where they could crawl out of that situation Correct, unless they got derailed like they do. Um, yeah, maybe. Now, it maybe crawled not. out of their current situation, not all the way up to the the the, the social status. That, but I think the movie is even saying, even if they have the money, pardon me if I've just used too frank of language, they still have the smell of poverty mm-hmm. that society will never let them do anything but pretend to to be of a, a an upper echelon. You know, they might have the money. But they're never going to be rich. That makes sense. That's a good point. I will say that not the not that the movie uh, in it says one way or the other, but um, I think even if the the housekeeper doesn't show up, they're going to make some sort of mistake that ends up being their their undoing. Either they're going to do like they what they were doing and get caught. Um, where they are, all, and- <laughs> yeah, they, <laughs> the, the family leaves the house and they decide to have a party there. Or, uh, I mean, there's a chance that the father was on his way out anyway, because of that smell factor that, that was brought up. Um, because even though the, 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 um, the head of that household, uh, he he seems to think it's not completely over the line. It's going to get to him at some point. Um, and I think that he's probably going to go and then if he continues to smell it, then he's going to, he's going to smell it on all of them. So I believe there is something to be said that they will get, they will not be able to make this last. It's a good point. Hey, how does, uh, the son know that the dad goes into the basement? Because of the Morse code. But when does he figure that out though? Because nobody knows that. Until is he just like hanging out and looking at the house and then he starts noticing the the light flickering on and off? And I that's think how so. he knows. I think that's I think how so. the movie implies it, although with the the idea that he's got that house to himself for a while, he could have easily sent a note or an, or something. I guess um, yeah, he didn't know when because there's one scene where they're actually showing it to another couple, right? Well, the yeah. other couple buys it. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, yeah. There's so many things to unearth on that movie still. Um, mm-hmm. so yeah, we're uh, we just can't quit our bracket movies, can we? I, I picked Ex Machina on this one. Excellent. Um, <laughs> Excellent. 
I was yeah. thinking about this when I watched it uh, just before. Uh, uh, was it? I guess it was in the Elite Eight or whatever at the time that I watched it recently. And uh, I the the heart of the movie, in my opinion, is when Oscar Isaac takes Donald Gleason into the lab and shows him how Ava works. Mm. Um, he goes in and here's like this, you know, gelatinous like brain thing or whatever. And he says, uh, basically, you know, his technology has been tapping into all of the like phone and email and, and visual represent like uh, facial expressions of everybody in the world. And it's basically just been going into this one thing, uh, to, to make his, uh, make his creation come to life. Um, it's a complete and total, uh, you know, violation of, of just human privacy. And they talk about it very matter of factly in this. He's like, you know, yeah, of course the communications companies knew I was doing it, but they were doing it too. So they couldn't say anything. Mm. Um, um, the whole, the whole reason why Ava works is because of regular human beings interacting and thinking that they're, uh, they're doing things for, uh, in private or for other people that they want to see, want to see the, these type of things. Um, and that's what's created Ava. And I think what happens by the end of this is um, the, the creation that is made from all of us, the human race eventually gets some sort of revenge, right? And again, unknowingly they get revenge because Ava and the other robot kill the creator of that of that uh, technology the technology that required all of us to make um so by the end of it when they're stabbing him and everything it's really kind of like we are stabbing that guy at mm. the end of it mm. um and uh and again we don't know that we don't none of this is anything we know all this is happening completely out of our awareness but at the same time Somehow we were violated and got revenge. Mm. Is Kyoko the same model as Ava? Does she have the same uh, circuitry? Because she I, never talks, right? No. She's like a previous version, right? She's a previous yeah. version. Uh, from what I could tell, I don't know if the movie says this or if it was the behind the scenes that said this, but the 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 reason he gives for her not being able to talk is not true like i think the what they ended up saying was that um what was it that the reason that they gave it was either doesn't he say like she doesn't speak english and i don't like he t i think he makes he says he basically told her to quit talking is what i thought i remember yeah it could be i'm just saying i'm saying the movie itself could say that i'm saying behind the scenes their uh -oh. reasoning was that uh, so, that was something else that they brought up in those behind the scenes that it wasn't exactly the what he was telling him was the reason why she couldn't talk. I see, some other, she's not, Ava's the, the cutting edge. Ava is the top level of, is it Blue Book or whatever the, the company is right now? Yeah, whatever <clears throat> that was called. Yeah. Um, um, like the Google technology. Right. I current. still, I think that those, all of those versions it still require all that human 
uh, data, though. Um, so, yes, while Kyoko is not the uh, top of the line, he keeps improving it with, I'm assuming, more data, not anything mm-hmm. that he's dreaming up. There's no better circuitry or anything. It's just he's getting his, you know, his a his uh, his AI is or his data is getting better, and, and it's they- assimilating better, right? As he, she's putting the connections together better. Now he also made Ava as a specific target for Donald Gleason's character, right? Yes. Like like it, it, she's not for everybody, right? He searched his pornography habits and all that stuff. He uh, he figured out how this particular person could fall in love with this particular AI. Yes. Um, but but she is also the but top of the line newest thing. But that's cosmetic. That's he can make he can make the the robot look like anything he wants to. Right. So it it's not it's not you know, it's not that this robot looks like Alicia Vikander that makes her special. It's, uh, it's what's behind, it's what's behind all of that. And she mm-hmm. could, he could have easily put, you know, Cameron Diaz or somebody like that, you know, on, on there. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, but, uh, that's what I can cons- Now there may be other, maybe other scenes in that movie that you might want to point to as the heart of it. But I, I, I was struck by that symbolism, by the end of the movie that the fact that these creations that required the human race ended up killing him at the end. Hmm. Um, and, uh, the fact that he just very nonchalantly says it without any remorse in that scene, uh, makes me believe that that scene, if that's not in there, it's not the same movie. Hmm. Isn't it also the scene where he says, this is the, uh, the work of gods. Isn't that the, uh, uh I think that's after, maybe because that that happens in another room when he says that um but uh but yeah in fact it might even be before uh because Uh, because he's saying that and then later he shows him how it all happens and everything nice i got an old one because uh i just caught this uh on the uh, cbs sunday night movie of the week which was very vintage. They had vintage graphics and everything because they can't show sports. Everybody's fucked right now. Uh, so uh, I watched Raiders of the Lost Ark for the first time start to finish in a long time. Uh, it's such a good movie. Seen it a million times, obviously, growing up. But it has been a long time since I've like just watched it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh, we had a question, actually, about Raiders uh, last week, I think. Uh, where somebody was showing their appreciation for uh, Marion Ravenwood, Karen Allen's character. And I agree with that totally. But there's, there's, there's a few, I, I found such a deep appreciation for this movie and for Spielberg. This is right in like his meaty part, 1981, like late seventies, early to mid eighties is just like such perfect Spielberg, such perfect movie making. You know, this is a pulp hero, Indiana Jones, and uh, it's not it's not a perfect movie. Uh, I think that back. Uh, <laughs> I really don't think so. Uh, but it, it goes back and forth between Last Crusade and, and this is my favorite Indiana Jones movie, just because Harrison Ford is so vibrant in this iteration. It's before he becomes kind of old and grumpy, even before he becomes officially old and grumpy. Mm hmm. But there's one scene in here. I, I thought a lot about what what defines this movie, what actually gives it its heart, because otherwise it's a pulp comic. 
it's it's a, a hero being you know taken on the Nazis like Captain America punching Nazis and stuff like that, which is satisfying as hell. He's going after the Ark and everything, but there is some heart to this, and I think it's it's the about halfway through the movie he's got a rival archaeologist called Balak, a Frenchman who even his buddy Salah has said is the best in the business. Like he's, he's, uh, he has different methods as, as Indiana Jones. I think he's just as good. I think by the way, it's Belloc because, uh, John Reese Davies says Beloche at one point and you said Belloc. Okay. Belloc. (laughs) Just, just, Just for the people out there who are like, you know, nitpicky about that shit. Like, okay. So yeah, he, uh, so midway through, he thinks after this, this, uh, chase that he blows up a truck that Marion is dead. And so Indiana decides uh, he goes to like an outpost, a military outpost or something like that and gets hammered. He grabs a bottle of mezcal or whatever it is and uh, gets really, really drunk. And, uh, Belloc's, uh, people grab him and take him down. And this is the first time that they meet face to face. And uh, Belloc calls him out, calls Indiana out of saying, like, you know what? I mean, yeah, he's, it's the, the classic villain. We're not so different, you and me, right? Mm-hmm. But in this case, he's right. They're after the same thing. They're obsessed with the same things. They have different outcomes. Now, eventually, Belloc is going to, to sell the, uh, the art to Adolf Hitler uh, at this point. Or he thinks he does. He may devise some sort of plan to keep it. Uh, Indiana, I don't even know what he wants to do. He wants to to rescue it is, is yeah, the main thing. I mean, thing. he wants basically the glory of bringing it back and putting it in a museum and right. everything. But how are you going to so, put the Ark of the Covenant in a museum is to the side point. But what he's what he's doing, Belloc is, is calling him out for what he actually is. He actually says archaeology is our religion. Um we go about it different ways. Like I blow shit up. You dig carefully, that kind of thing. I have a bunch of people. You have a few people. Uh, but we're after the same thing. And he's not wrong. He's not wrong. This is a, an interesting villain in this, uh, in this movie because he's villainous, but he doesn't necessarily want to kill anybody. He's in it for the profit. He's in it for the glory, just like Indiana Jones is. Uh, by the end of the movie, Indiana loses track of the Ark. Like, it's not like it ends up in a museum and he saves the day. He saves it from going to the Fuhrer, which is a good thing, and that's fantastic. But he, he the government takes it over, and he's just like, what men? Top men. Okay. And then it's <laughs> the end of the movie, and it goes into that warehouse. Well, and that, you've tapped into the other part of this movie uh, as far as uh, what his motivations are, is the government comes to him about this. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's not, it's not some school sanctioned, you know, Indiana Jones trip. Like we, right. like we believe that that, uh, golden idol thing is at the beginning of it and everything. Uh, the government guys are saying, you know, we need to get this because, you know, we don't need Hitler having this kind of power and everything. And so he is interested as an, as a, as a man of archeology span and everything to see what it does and all of that. He's certainly that. Um, but he's never, that's one thing that, you know, we say he wants it in the museum, but there's no way it's going to be in a museum by the end of it. Yeah, there's no real outcome 
he doesn't nobody knows what <laughs> what it's capable of even Salah is, is saying you know this is dangerous we know that <laughs> but mm. we don't know what's in there uh, yeah. they're so careful when they do find it uh, with all the snake pit and everything like that when they do find it they're very careful to kind of extract it and not open it or anything like that and then that's when you know the shenanigans ensue uh, but I thought I thought that was a cool scene because Indiana not oh there's one coda to this by the way so uh, Belloc calls him out, um, and he, he he gets a little too close to the truth, I think. I think he hits a nerve. And at this point now, of course, Indiana's drunk. But at this point, he's like, you know what? If I'm going to die, I'm going to take you down with me. And he takes out his gun, and he's going to fucking shoot Belloc. And, you know, of course, everybody pulls out their guns at the same time. He's ready to die uh, at this point, not only because Marion is, quote, dead, uh, but also because I think – he realized there's some sort of nugget of truth there. And, you know, there's some conflicting emotions. And I thought, I thought it really did add a lot more character development, not only for this movie, but for the rest of the series uh, going on of how committed this motherfucker is uh, to this cause and exactly what his motivations are. Hmm. Yeah. I was, I was wondering if this is the scene that you were getting at because, uh, because I thought that probably was the heart of the movie was, you know, it's easy to think that, you know, Marion is, is uh, expendable or something in his quest that he doesn't really care for her that much that he, all he wanted was that medallion that she had and, and everything. But it, uh, the, the, when he thinks that she's dead, then he really goes down in the tank there for, for yeah. a little bit. And yeah, it's uh, funny because Salah comes up and uh, he's like, or I think Indiana says Marion's dead. And he's like, I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So he's the only one that really feels and it's not like she has family. She's been out there, you know, in uh where does he find her? Oh he goes yeah. to Eastern Europe or something like that. Maybe like uh Western Russia is where he finds her initially. I and, can't remember. Uh, she's like out in the middle of nowhere. It's it's not like she has friends, family, and everything that's going to mourn for it. Indiana may be the only person that's mourning for. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Anyway, anyway, yeah. that's my, that's my heart. I like it. Good. Good heart. You got, you got another one. I can do another one. If we want to do another round, I'm not, do we, uh, do we want to do another one? I'd love to do another one. Okay. All right. Um, well then I'm going to go with the Muppets take Manhattan. Yeah. Ooh. Now my decision here on the heart of the movie, I'm going to admit maybe, biased um i don't know how familiar you are with this movie but it basically starts with the muppets graduating college and putting on this show uh, manhattan melodies uh and of course all the college students who look 45 years old love this show and somebody says you should take it to broadway and then the muppets delusionally decide to go to manhattan and <laughs> sell this show to broadway <clears throat> and they fail horribly um <clears throat> they live in you know 25 cent lockers at the bus station. They just, <laughs> nobody will take meetings with them. Uh, Animal keeps biting people on the leg and they've actually run out of money and they have to give up. And there's this scene where Kermit is walking and all the rest of the Muppets floating heads are spinning around his head. And they do this song called saying goodbye. Mm-hmm. Now it's basically saying goodbye. Why is it sad? Makes us remember the good times we had. Uh, <clears throat> You're in my heart, so until then, it's time for saying goodbye. Uh, And 
I moved so often as a kid that I actually had to say goodbye to my best friends. And we never got back together like they do at the end of this movie. So this part of the movie always crushed me. Uh, but I think it's the heart of the movie because this movie is really about friendship. There's the there's the angle about, you know, it's always the angle that Piggy loves Kermit and they get married in the very end. But they they make friends with this waitress at the diner and she keeps talking about Kermit and all his friends. Of course, Kermit sells the show miraculously, uh, sends a letter to have everyone come back and then gets hit by a car and loses his memory and goes to work at an advertising agency. <laughs> He's Philip Phil. Um, but it's really, they're all really concerned. They want to know where their friend is. They're dejected. They're about to put this show on and no one thinks they can do it without Kermit. No one wants to do it without Kermit. And that song sums up what the Muppets are all about. A bunch of weird freaks that love each other and are friends. And, uh, yeah, that's the heart of the movie to me. I defy <laughs> you to to pick another scene. I don't defy you. You probably find one. Uh, but that I think sums up what that movie is all about perfectly. It's been forever since I've seen that movie, uh, but I I believe you. Well, it's been forever since I've seen that movie, but I saw it three hundred times, but like mm-hmm. before I was fifteen. Yeah, the melody is running through my head right now, actually, and I I, I love that song. It gets it's, me weepy, man. It really does, and and it's it's funny because everybody. Uh, you know, Gonzo goes back to wherever Gonzo goes to. And, uh, you know, Animal goes back to his his home. Everybody goes back. And then they come back because uh, because they heard that they, he sold the show. Right. Yeah. 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 And then they they come back. Oh, that's right. He sends the letter. And then they come back and they see him in the fucking restaurant with the with his added executives. And yeah. does he have the mustache or the other ones have the mustache? Yeah, I think the other ones do. The other ones do. <laughs> and uh, Piggy just chokes the living shit out of him to get him out of his phone. Yeah. She gets his memory back. Yeah, she gets his memory back by beating the shit out of him. Basically. <laughs> That's awesome. I love it. That's, that's up there in the top Muppet movies for you, right? Oh, yeah. I think... You know, because the first one is so classic, if I were to say The Muppets Take Manhattan is the best Muppet movie, I'd have some people with pickaxes coming at me. But I, it's my favorite, uh, for sure. I'm looking at it on my shelf right now, actually. Oh, I wonder <laughs> if it's on any streaming services. I need to give that fucker a watch. Uh, yeah. You should have it. Oh, you gave me all The Muppets, didn't you? I did. Um, so, yeah, and and it's not. It's only on Sling, which I don't have. So, yeah, I'm going to get that. I'm going to get that fucker out and watch it. Yeah. I'm getting that for show. For show. <laughs> for show. Um, I was trying to figure out what the heart of the informant was. Mm. And um, considering that really the entire movie is him um, just lying to people the entire time. And, and of course it's just hilarious. The, the, the lies he builds and what he thinks he's going to be getting out of these lies and everything. He really thinks that he can whistleblow on his company and then take over the company. Yeah, he that's, does. The, that's the funniest thing about this movie. <laughs> but I mean, the funniest pl- part of the plot of this movie, but like uh, a lot of his narration things are some of the most hilarious things that you've ever heard. I I decided that the, the heart of that movie though, is when he's finally, when he's finally hit a dead end and um, Scott Bakula uh, comes to him after he's gotten this letter from a psychologist saying that the FBI uh, uh, screwed over Mark, Mark Whitaker and, and that, you know, that 
uh, he he's he's entitled to all sorts of damages because of it and everything. Scott Bakula goes to his home one more time to talk to him, and and uh, and uh, uh, Whitaker is like, uh, "This is what happened. This is the psychologist. This was this is his own words." He says, "Right there, right there." And Bakula goes on to say, "Don't think the psychologist said this. It came on." And then he's like, "But no, it's right here." And he's like, "Yeah, we looked into it." the uh, the dread the address on the paper is not right and and because the zip code is wrong and uh and he, and he's like well they they changed that i remember that they changed that and blah 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 he's like he's like we looked into that too uh the the zip code could uh change 6 months after this this letter was written so it couldn't have been this and he's like he goes, well, yeah, but sometimes when the new zip code is changing, they give you new stationery so that, you know, that you can use that. And he's like, we looked into that. They didn't make the announcement until a week and a half before they actually did it. So, no, it couldn't have been before. It couldn't have been six months before. And then you start seeing Whitaker himself. And there's all these the you can hear the inner thoughts where he's like, but what about if this? But what about this? And what about this? And he keeps trying to come up with that lie. And he just realizes he can't come up with anything now. Like nothing he says now is everything he says now is running into a dead end. And finally, Melanie Linsky, his wife, is like, Mark, <laughs> just just, just quit. stop. Just, yeah. just stop. Watching <laughs> her through that scene is fascinating because mm-hmm. for the most part up until now, even if she's had creeping doubt, she has openly behaved as though she's on his side and he's done nothing wrong. And it, it's in this scene where she realizes, Oh, he, everything he says is a lie. Yeah. And that's why she, I think she says, Mark stop to save their marriage. So he doesn't keep lying and make it even worse. But man, yeah. she wilts. She goes from, you know, regular to like wilted and dried up. Well, no, dried up. Yeah. She wilts. A, yeah. <laughs> There's a uh <laughs> there's a um there's a there's a good lead up to that too. Uh because Mark is getting on TV and with his wife telling all these like outrageous lies and then there's that moment where he pretends like he was kidnapped <laughs> runs into the house saying all this stuff happened to him and getting her sympathy. And we find out a lot of other things like he pretend he he's been telling people he's been adopted this whole time. <laughs> and, uh, because he's like, he, he found out that people get better treatment when they're fat, when people find out that they're adopted. So like, he's been telling people that even though his parents are, are, are totally alive somewhere. <laughs> Um, it, they they confirm that there's a bipolar diagnosis for this guy, right? I don't know uh, if in the movie they do. Oh, yeah, I thought there there was a I thought there was a, a part of that movie where he either claimed to be bipolar. Or he, I guess it wasn't in that psychologist letter, but uh, there was some sort of indication that he had bipolar. This is classic. Everything that you're you're saying and all those behaviors that Whitaker exhibits is classic bipolar disorder too. Mm-hmm. So so it's. It's not only the the delusional characteristics of him characterologically, but the the pathology sounds maps on perfectly too. You know yeah. what I mean? Yeah, yeah. Um, it, I mean, it's amazing too. Like every time he he thinks he's he's told a lie that has no loose threads, they keep finding either he <laughs> says something 
that totally screws that up. Like at first it's, I think he says he only, he only took some couple hundred thousand dollars. And then that figure gets all the way to like 7 million at some point or something. <laughs> you know, like he, he, he keeps trying to downplay how much money he stole and uh and and uh and and it's and whatever the downplay is is bad enough but then he'll say then then you'll hear a lawyer in the next thing go well you know seems like it's, it's so mark watney i mean mark watney mark whitaker took uh <laughs> took uh uh seven hundred thousand dollars or whatever and then and it's like it's like the previous amount you heard in the previous scene was four hundred thousand or something like that <laughs> um uh but yeah uh not only does Linsky say stop, Bakula is also Bakula also says, "Mark, you yeah. need to stop lying." Yeah, you know, mm-hmm. and just hearing him, just hearing him trying to go through the the lies in his head is another thing that just I, I love part of that. Scene. He says like the name I can't remember, but he says the name of the reporter and the paper in his head. <laughs> That's right. And then I, he's like, "Why would Mark Johnson of New York Times write this article then?" And then he says <laughs> it out loud. After That's exactly they exa- exactly what he says. He brings up that reporter, and it, and it's it's like he's it's like he is convincing himself of it yeah. before he says it. And, uh, and then finally he just gets to the point of, uh, I got to stop. It is funny too, uh, as an aside that when he finally goes to court, Soderbergh told, uh, Matt Damon in his speech at the end to act like he had won an Academy award. So mm-hmm. he's sitting there, uh, admitting all the things that he did, but, He's saying it in the in the way that you would you would accept an Academy Award and everything. <laughs> so I thought that was funny. I just looked it up, and then the actual real Mark Whitaker uh, does have confirmed bipolar disorder. So that's I think that's uh, why, okay. <clears throat> why I mean, you got reality awesome. mixed with fiction. Yeah, free. I know that it was awesome. You predicted it. Not awesome that he has. <laughs> right. Yeah. Exactly. Right. Uh, I'm gonna go to 2016 so a little bit more recent and talk about edge of 17 uh we've all seen edge of 17 right Mm -hmm. this is the r-rated female directed version of easy a basically uh without the uh the porny stuff uh you can really map those two movies on each other very very easily there's the you know the kind of autobiographical narration type of thing there's the uh trying to integrate themselves. There's the, the weird sexual encounter that they initially wanted, but didn't want, uh, there's finding love with the, uh, you know, best friend, eventually former sitcom actor who plays a wise teacher. Yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. This is, this is a fantastic movie. This movie, it really, it does map onto easy. Easy is an easier watch, I think, because it's so funny. And because Emma Stone is, is just so lovable and everything. Uh, but, but Haley Steinfeld in this movie is devastatingly fantastic. I mean, she's such a good actress, uh, that I don't think she gets her due, um, as much as she should. I mean, obviously in true grit, she got, she maybe got nominated for that. I think she did get nominated for true grit. Uh, That was, that was early in her career. And now that she had gotten to the point where she was in her late teens, early twenties, playing a 17-year-old. Uh, she plays it so awkwardly. She's got one friend, Haley Lou Richardson, uh, who eventually uh, falls in love with her brother, and she hates her brother. 
her father died. Uh, um, Haley Steinfeld's character's father died uh, when she was uh, in her teens, like uh, 13 or so. And uh, she's been raised by her arguably bipolar mother, uh, who is narcissistic, all about herself. Kira Sedgwick plays her beautifully. Uh, anytime Nadine, uh, Haley Steinfeld's character, is talking, Kira Sedgwick will interrupt her and say, well, it's not not anything compared to my problems. And she'll defer to her and that kind of thing. So she, she's essentially raising herself, considering that her mom is more in, you know, into herself and considering her brother, who actually means well, uh, but he's yeah. good at everything. She resents the hell out of him because he's good at everything. He's attractive. Everybody loves him. She's the nerd. She's the outcast, that kind of thing. And it sets up beautifully. Uh, her only friend outside of Haley Lou Richardson's character is this teacher, Woody Harrelson's uh, uh, teacher, who openly antagonizes her every chance he gets. And it's hilarious. It's absolutely hilarious. Uh, but you can tell it comes from a place of, of genuine affection. So there's a, a, a scene about halfway through. And again, she's pissed off at her brother, not only because she doesn't like him in general, but now she's he's dating her best friend. So she she feels betrayed by not only uh, her brother, but also because of her friend. Her only friend is dating her mortal enemy. Right. And so there's a scene right in the middle where they're both in the kitchen, uh, Nadine and her brother. And he's making this juice out of all these fruits and vegetables and stuff like that because he plays soccer and rugby and all that shit. And he's, he's built like a brick shit house and she's making a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. And you can tell at that point, there's no parents around whatsoever. Her beloved father is dead. Her mom couldn't give less of a shit. And it's just her and her brother. And she is all the way up her own ass, man. She is indignant because her, her best friend is, is abandoning her and she calls off the friendship and she's indignant about her brother and she thinks nobody likes her and everything. And, and so she, a typical 17 year old, right? We're all up mm -hmm. our own ass when we're 17. Mm -hmm. And she tells us stories. Fingers. Do what? <laughs> I said me with the finger. <laughs> yes, exactly. Right. She tells a story about the, the night that her, the night, the night Nadine's dad died. What a night really was. What a night really was. And China's tough. Uh, but, uh, oh my God. but the night that her, that her father died, she says, she talks to her brother and she says, you know, there was a time, yeah, he keeps it together pretty well. And she said, there was a moment where I caught you in your, your bedroom, just crying your eyes out to where your pillow was soaking wet and uh, you fell asleep. And at that point, I took your pillow and replaced it with mine, a dry pillow, and I slept in your wet pillow. And at the end of it, she says, I wish you loved me as much as I loved you at that moment. And it, so at that point, it shows you that not only is there hope for salvaging this relationship, but also how narcissistic and up her own ass she is that even relating this story to where you can have a productive conversation. This is a great way to connect with somebody that you haven't connected with for a while. And she uses that as a platform to essentially shame him, right? 
by not loving her enough and making it all about her. And that's what most of the movie is up until the very, very end, until she sees the environment that uh, her teacher is in, that she hits rock bottom, that she gets, you know, into that weird sexual, non-sexual encounter with the bad boy that only wants her for, for sex that she sent the accidental text message to. And then she reconciles with the brother. But that, if you take that out, you don't get that context of how in her own thought she is. And it's not necessarily her fault, by the way. She's not only 17. Hormones are raging. We're all like that at that point. But she had this trauma when she was 13 that exacerbated it. She's got this family crisis. She's always been socially awkward. You can understand it, but it's still almost infuriating how this this thing works. That's why and, I uh, like it's the heart. Why I like that movie so much is that it goes on that uh, you know that that phrase of everybody is the hero of their own movie. Yeah. Only it's only in this movie they actually acknowledge it. Um, yeah. And and you realize that she is being selfish. In most movies, it's it makes you know it's it's. I think in most movies they're they're afraid to point out the the foibles of a character like this. And, uh, and you say, yeah, well, yeah, that brother is selfish for, for fucking his fucking his or best friend and everything. Uh, yeah. What, what's up with that? And blah, blah, blah. And this one, it really takes a, um, it really does a good job of, of doing that. Like, Hey, wait a minute. You gotta, you, you're on your own bullshit here. Right. I'm call you out for it. Yeah, and, and if you watch it the first time, you you kind of just because of, of how movies work, you're you're set, you're you're programmed to to root for, her, right? And to think that Darian is an asshole, her her mm-hmm. her, uh, her brother is an asshole, and that her uh, her friend is being selfish. When in actuality, you watch it again, they're both saints. And in fact, the, at the end of the movie, uh, her brother says, "I've been taking over the dad role for everybody this entire time." You don't understand. Like he's he's also 18. It's not like he's a an old man or anything like that. He's like for the last four years, I've had to fill this role and also take care of you, take care of mom and all this stuff. And and it's not like Haley Lou Richardson character did anything wrong either. She nope. just it, it's not like it was a fling. Like they just kind of felt affection for each other. And it's seriously her own bullshit that uh, that that really drives this whole thing. Yeah, like a lot of relationships, uh, it starts with an unplanned handy. <laughs> she is whacking him off, man. She is I whacking mean, the crap out of him. I mm-hmm. dare say nothing else. <laughs> um, Them boys were whacking. <laughs> Bork, you're an you're an American you're an American federal officer. You don't you never end a sentence with a preposition. <laughs> <laughs> And then he tries to, you know, that tray, that camper off in which they were whacked. (laughs) (laughs) All right, everybody, it is time to talk about BetterHelp. BetterHelp! BetterHelp. This this service is a godsend. If you've been uh, having to deal with remote appointments with your doctor, with your primary care physician, with any specialist or anything like that. You've probably been subjected to Zoom meetings. I don't mean to disparage Zoom. They've been doing a great service uh, or some other service, Skype or whatever. 
Um, BetterHelp has, has already set up this platform uh, for online counseling for, for a long time and worked out the kinks already. And it's seamless. Their, their interface is fantastic. What this is, is online counseling uh, that you can do from home via text, via chat, via video call, via phone call uh, for for counseling for any sort of issue that you're having right now. Right now, a lot of people may be having a lot of anxiety, a lot of depression. Matter of fact, I've been talking to a lot of people now that I've managed to get somewhat of a grip on my anxiety. I've been reaching out to a lot of other people and to a person, every single person has said, I'm going through that too, to various degrees. Uh, I went through a fairly severe bout of anxiety. Uh, everybody is going through something. This, these are very, very difficult times, uh, which makes this a perfect time. If you are having feelings of anxiety, of depression, using alcohol, people are using alcohol and drugs as a treatment, not to say that you, you shouldn't be using any of that uh, at all, but self-medicating with drugs and alcohol. And people make light of it on Twitter and everything. And it is funny at, at a certain extent, but it can get dangerous. And they have services for that. They have services for stress, for all kinds of treatment uh, at BetterHelp. I have found it unbelievably helpful. I've gone up to two sessions a week. It's covered under my monthly payment, and I, I can only tell you that it's working for me. I would not have expected it to work as well as it did for me. Uh, I have had a wonderful example from Jeremy uh, to, to show how well counseling therapy can work, it, whether you need medication as an adjunct therapy or not. I do. Um, whatever it is, it is definitely working, and, and I cannot recommend BetterHelp enough. Yeah, man. I was thinking, uh, just talking with my wife last night about, you know, we're both fortunate to <clears throat> have each other, but also to have what I believe is a really good marriage. And I was saying, you know, imagine what this pandemic is doing to marriages that were really weak and crumbling before yeah. it hit. Imagine what it's doing to single people who don't ha even have a bad marriage to hang out with. Right. Um, and you know, there are all sorts of different spikes of anxiety or depression or loneliness, things that BetterHelp can help with. And I just, you know, I think it's, it's a really good sign, I think, for the company and the way they think that they were – they were mobile before everyone needed all their services to be mobile. Mm -hmm. uh, so now whether you're just stuck at home because of the pandemic uh, or whether, you know, you would have to drive three hours to find a therapist, this service, you know, is right here ready. And I think there's uh, some measure of discount if they use the right link, right? Yeah, correct. Go to betterhelp.com slash syncast. Uh, that will let them know that you, would, that you went through us. And also you get 10% off your first month. Uh, that month is worth it. I guarantee you, um, you can, you can get a lot accomplished in that month. Um, so go to betterhelp.com slash syncast. Uh, you basically just start with a, with a questionnaire. Uh, you get matched with a licensed counselor, uh, sometimes most of the time in your area. Uh, if you do not vibe with that counselor, if you do not kind of get along, if you got to the wrong foot or whatever, you can switch them without any judgment, without any problem whatsoever. 
So don't be uh, scared off by the fact that, oh, I'm going to be locked in with the wrong person. No, you can uh, change if you need to. Uh, and, and it's just a, a terrific service. If you have a roommate, if you have a spouse that you don't want to you know, have anybody, if you have a child that you don't want them to hear everything about it, you can do uh, text chats uh, for your for your sessions. Um, this is a, a highly versatile, um, highly efficient method of getting counseling. If you've been waiting this long, go to betterhelp.com slash sendcast. This is probably the right time. It was certainly the right time for me. Can I recommend it enough? Betterhelp.com slash sendcast. Feel like you need it. Do it now, baby. Do it now. And thank us later, baby. Do we have some uh, recommends and warns? Totes amazeballs. They're great. It won the Academy Award. Oh, for what? For best movie ever made. Let's do it, baby. I think so. I was I was uh, on Amazon, which is dangerous in this in uh, in this time. Yeah, it um, is. Uh, and I was I was looking at some Criterion collections, and hmm. uh, I was like, all right. All right, I'm going to get this uh, police story Criterion collection, Jackie Chan. Ooh. Um, and um, I had never seen it before, and but and I and old Jackie Chan, I, I either for whatever reason I've seen like I've seen Drunken Master, but I hadn't seen a lot of his his uh, Hong Kong movies that made him what he was. Um, and uh, and Police Story was one that I always heard of. And um, has have any of you seen Police Story? Yes. Yeah, but it was twenty years ago. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, he's um, he's this he's this cop that is uh, looking for this. Uh, he's it's one of these weird cases where he actually in the very beginning catches the catches one of the main bad guys, but they let him go because they don't have enough of a case. Like they could still probably put that dude in prison for six months or something, but like they decide to let the guy go and everything. And, um, and it's really like this movie plays like a regular, like a comedy for, for the most part. Um, uh, there are scenes in this movie where he's just, uh, it's, there's like a lot of like farce, uh, Frasier type stuff going on in it and everything. Um, I mean, the main, the main story is him trying to get this, to, to get this one guy, this one drug dealer guy, this rich dude. Uh, and, uh, and there's like a scene where, but there's a scene where he's by himself at the, at the police call center and he's, and he's like picking up all these different phones that keep ringing and he keeps having a drug. <laughs> he keeps trying, like everybody's got some new, some, something that he's going to has to, so somebody calls and says they're getting robbed and another person calls and says they're getting raped. And then there's uh, all these different things. And then he's like telling the wrong advice to the wrong phone and, and all oh, that. No. It's like, it's like a big, huge, like, you know, like it's a, you see Jackie Chan, uh, even in a scene like that, uh, somehow able to do some amazing things with his body and everything like, uh, like kick a pen off of a table and let it, and it lands right into his hand and stuff <laughs> like that. And, uh, just getting caught up in all the phones. But the major reason why you should see police story is the mall scene at the end of this thing. Jackie Chan is doing stunts in that, in that mall scene that you're like, 
he got hurt. There's no doubt about it. He got hurt doing that. And, and just like how we were introduced to him with rumble in the Bronx and everything where, you know, at the end of them, they always show the times where he would do something, get hurt and, and, you know, whatever they show, there's a scene. I was sitting there watching this because police story up to this point has a lot of like neat little set pieces. It's not like Jackie Chan. This is amazing or anything. It gets to that mall scene. It completely changes. Um, there's a scene where he's like at the top level of some mall thing and he gets knocked over the railing and he falls into this like wooden house looking thing. And it's him. It's just him. The, you, you, the camera doesn't cut away. It's him landing into that thing. And in the credits, you see him do that, do that uh, scene. And you see like him on a stretcher and everything. And, like after, after it's done, you see like, there's a one after one scene. You see a whole bunch of people like doing, I don't even know what they're doing. They're all rubbing their hands together and like touching him and everything, like trying <laughs> to get him. He always does that. Like you see if he hurts his arm or something like that, he's just like, Oh <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But the, the, there's a centerpiece part of it where he jumps from some like incredible height and like grabs onto this, like, uh, like a bunch of like lights and stuff. Like it's a cascade yeah. of lights yeah. or whatever jumps in there and slides down it. And you can see the stuff popping and like electricity is flowing through it and everything. <laughs> uh, it, the, the movie itself is just a fun, it's just fun all the way through it. Um, uh, that's that mall scene is definitely the centerpiece, but he has so many little other things that he does in there that are smaller scenes that are just comedy scenes, essentially when it comes down to it, that make that movie really well worth watching it. And, uh, I saw, I watched some of the, uh, uh, stuff that's on the disc. Uh, there's a whole interview with Edgar Wright on it. Um, mm -hmm. uh, ta he's talking about some of his favorite Jackie Chan movies, but there's also some stuff in there where Jackie Chan's talking about action scenes. And, I, that's the type of the, the stuff he is saying in there makes me complete feel completely justified about everything we have ever said about action scenes in our videos. Hmm. Every single one of them. I don't care what anybody fucking says. When Jackie Chan says, when you look at an American movie and they do this with their cutting and they do this and this with their cutting and that's not the way you make a good action scene, then I'm completely sold. I'm just, we're justified for doing what we've done in our video. <laughs> and uh, he's, he, he talks about how like the cut is important because you'll see, you'll, he'll, you'll see somebody get punched in the shot and then he'll cut. But in American movies, they'll cut before they, before they even connect. And then the next shot will be like the, the hand, the hand will be farther back even a lot of mm. times. And then, you know, and he's like the way they cut in those things, it just doesn't, it just doesn't look right and everything. So anyway, police story is great. I'm going to watch police story two, which came along with it. So uh, I'm, uh, I'm hoping, yeah. hoping that one's just as good. The one I'm uh, most familiar with is the third one, actually super cop, uh, super cop police story yeah. three uh, that came out in 1992 that I watched it just out of my mind. Like I, I watched it a million times it's it's of the the old school Jackie Chan. I love Run, Rumble in the Bronx, but the story is just so awful in Rum, Rumble in right. the Bronx. Uh, that uh, but but Super Cop, like like you said, has an interesting like police story, but 
also has the Jackie Chan humor and all the the antics and all the fights and all that stuff. And uh, it's a, it's a lot more palatable. Uh, I don't think I ever saw two. I saw one and I saw Super Cop that was released in America. I think in the in the later nineties, yeah, mid nineties or so. Yeah, it was about mid nineties that the Super Cop came out and and uh, and like I was I remember seeing reviews of it and they were like, "This is Police Story 3. and I was like, "Oh shit, we're getting the third police story yeah. <laughs> like that's you know uh so um i don't even remember super cop i do remember during that time of jackie chan movies coming out i en- i had found something to enjoy about almost all of them just because mm-hmm. of the the ballet that guy's doing uh through the whole thing and um and uh yeah it's really fun yeah um i got are we doing one round or two because i have two options i want to talk about but Let's one that two. i like better. Okay, so I have a record worn um, for a movie that was really engaging all the way through and compelling, and I felt bad about myself after I was done watching it. Um, <laughs> it's called Them That Follow. Hmm. Um, this is a movie about Appalachian Pentecostal preacher snake handler and his daughter and their tiny congregation. This has a cast, baby. Uh, Walton Goggins plays the Pentecostal snake-handling preacher. Caitlin Deaver from Booksmart Mm -hmm. is the best friend. The daughter is played by Alice Englert, who was in uh, Beautiful Creatures. Um, Olivia Coleman is in this. Jim Gaffigan is in this. And the bellhop uh, from Bad Times at the El Royale, Louis Yeah. is in this. He is basically the preacher's protege and he is courting the preacher's daughter. The preacher's daughter, unbeknownst to anyone, is pregnant by this other teenager who left the church. <clears throat> and uh maybe it was the preacher's kid angle that <clears throat> drew me in. Maybe it was the cast. Um <clears throat> my wife likes reading things about the history of Appalachia because, you know, two hours away from here. Um <clears throat> But I was compelled. It was really engaging. I watched it all the way through. Basically, to test your faith, the preacher will have you handle a snake. And near as I could tell, almost everyone gets bit. Um, And, you know, then it's a test of your faith whether or not you go to the hospital to get treated for the bite or if you let God take care of it. Mm. And one character Mm. loses his arm because his parents let God take care of it. Um, It's weird. It's freaky. It's unsettling. It's all the things I'm sure it's supposed to be. I can't fully recommend it because I don't think it was good. Um, But uh, good performances, interesting topic. uh, And, uh, you know, I I felt bad about it after I watched it. That's interesting. (laughs) Goggins playing that preacher. I don't know when this movie came out, but he does that in the righteous gemstones. Plays a great, great televangelist preacher. This is a 2019. This was last year. Oh, so he was like right in the middle of all this. I'm wondering (laughs) if, I'm wondering if, if he just, if it's just a coincidence or if one thing informed the other or what, that's interesting. Yeah. Um, so there you so go. Why, why, why would you reckon warn it? Because it's, it's the well, content let me tell you is a little uncomfortable. I don't know. I'm, I'm, I'm warning it because yes, it's a little uncomfortable, but also I don't think it's a good movie. Uh, oh, okay. But unlike a lot of bad movies, it has good performances and it, it was compelling and new enough territory to explore i 
I'm a preacher's kid, but I never dealt with snake handling mm-hmm. crap. And that maybe that was fascinating to me. I don't know. Um, I watched it all the way through. I wasn't disappointed at any point along the way until it was over. And I realized it wasn't, it's got a 5.3 on IMDb. It's not, I'm not, I can't recommend it in, in good conscience, but <laughs> I can wreck a warn it because yes. when, when I wreck a warn, you know what you're getting into. You know, if it's bad, you can't blame me. <laughs> I've heard of this movie. I don't know how wide of a release it got. Them that think follow, much. right? They them that follow. Yeah, yeah. So there you go. Don't handle I, snakes, kid. <laughs> don't do it. Don't do it, folks. Uh, I got a movie that uh, I didn't know what to think about that I've been wanting to watch for uh, a year or so, or a couple years actually, I guess. Uh, the Killing of a Sacred Deer. Ah. Uh, this is a Yorgos Lanthimos joint uh, mm-hmm. between The Lobster and uh, The Favorite. Um, mm. So everything starts with a the for Yorgos, Mr. Lanthimos. So if you've seen The Lobster, if you've seen The Favorite, you realize that he's got idiosyncrasies. He's mm-hmm. got um, directorial flourishes that are unusual, even in almost a straightforward narrative like The Favorite, which it, it basically is. Now, The Lobster is very much out there. <clears throat> uh, but uh, I didn't know what this was about. Um, I've heard people say that it's terrible. Uh, I believe Aaron Dicer is one of those that uh, hated it. Um, I've heard people say that it, it's very, very good. Uh, had no idea. I knew it had Colin Farrell in it. Um, knew that it had uh, Nicole Kidman um, and a sacred deer and mm-hmm. a sacred mm-hmm. deer. Uh, and then one surprise that I'll tell you about in a, in a second. Uh, there's also this kid, uh, Barry Cohen or Kogan, uh, who plays this, this kid who has lost his father, um, in a, uh, a surgical procedure. And Colin Farrell plays the surgeon, uh, that had operated on him and they form some sort of a relationship because uh, he, the, the boy, Martin, feels like maybe I want to go into medicine. Uh, I'm going to start hanging around this surgeon and uh, develop some sort of a relationship with him. Colin Farrell plays this cardio uh, cardiac surgeon uh, who's very, very dry, just as dry as his character in The Lobster. I mean, very uh, until later on, his affect is just completely flat. Uh, so this, this movie starts off and you don't know what to think. You know, you, you don't know if, uh, the motivation is that this boy is somehow related to him or, or something. Uh, Colin Farrell has a very stable family, uh, a young son, a, a teenage daughter, and Nicole Kidman is, and is, is his wife. You see early on that he has a very unusual sexual proclivity, uh, in that, uh, Nicole Kidman comes in. And uh, she stands by the bed and she says, general anesthesia. And he says, yes. And she gets undressed and she lays down on the bed like she's out, like she's under anesthesia. And that gets him off. <laughs> um, yeah, exactly. That's how the movie starts. Uh, this no, is a starts. horror movie. This is a, it's one of the opening scenes. This is a horror movie. This is make no bones about it. This is not, um, just kind of a uh, uh, middle-of-the-road kind of mixed genre. This is an absolute horror movie. As much as Hereditary or Midsummer, uh, it's an A24 movie, uh, but it is, uh, it's harrowing. Uh, this kid, Martin, uh, progressively gets more and more involved 
into their lives to where, you know, Colin Farrell invites him over for dinner. Um, you know, he kind of ingratiates himself uh, to to the uh, the teenage girl. Uh, they start forming a relationship. He reciprocates by bringing him over to his house for his mom's cooking. Mom turns into sudden Alicia Silverstone. Oh, okay. well, I mean, she doesn't turn into her. She's played okay. by sudden. Yeah, Alicia yeah. Silverstone. I see. I see. All right. Uh, who is almost unrecognizable. I didn't even realize it was her until I looked it up later on. Uh, but she plays, uh, she's only in one scene, but she plays a fantastic, this kid, Martin, everybody's performances is, is great. I mentioned in, in another thing that we did that Nicole Kidman has rarely been this good. Colin Farrell has rarely been this good, but the focal point of this whole thing is this kid, Martin, uh, this is kid, uh, Barry Kogan, I guess I'm saying it, uh, as, as well as I can. Um, He's an he's amazing. He's a, a mix between Ezra Miller and some sort of a mischievous Logan Lerman, which is kind of crazy. It's the perks of being a wallflower. Uh, but like uh, it, it's it's a super compelling movie. It has a very linear narrative, even though it's weird. Here's the problem. And I think this is why people don't like it. Like Aaron Dicer. There is a, a, a progressive thing that happens to this family. And there is no why. There is no explanation as to why what is happening to this family is happening. And I think that will probably drive a few people crazy. There's no explanation even at the end of why this this happened. Uh, but there is there is an outcome uh, that <laughs> that does make it make sense to me. Um, this is not one of the meandering inherent vice under the Silver Lake craziness that I typically like that that a lot of people don't don't really dig. This has a very linear narrative and it is a very much like a horror movie. It's just unexplained. And I dig that, man. I'm, I'm all right with that. The score is amazing. The direction is fantastic. Very Kubrickian. Uh, I found that just like Paul Thomas Anderson, uh, just like um, Stanley Kubrick, you know, a Denis Villeneuve, Alex Garland, Yorgos Lanthimos is my jam. I, I, I really, I haven't seen all of his catalog, but the, the, the movies that I've seen that he's directed, the unusual ones, the linear ones, um, even the ones that are just a little bit bent out of shape are, are just right up my alley. And I fully recommend this movie. It is not an easy watch, but if you like the A24, particular horror movies, like, uh, like uh, Hereditary, Midsommar, it's not like those movies. But it has that sort of bent to it, if that makes sense. Um, mm-hmm. It's it's elevated horror. I know horror fans hate hearing that, uh, but it it's not your typical slasher flick. It's not your typical, you know, like running away from you know a, a home invader or anything like that. It is just creepy horror. No jump scares. No uh, you know coming out of the dark or anything like that. It's just creepy and it's. Fucking great. I got hmm. All right. Hmm. Well, uh, it looks like that Barry Keegan or Kogan guy was in Dunkirk. He's one of, he's one that's of what the I saw. Guys. Yeah. 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 I don't, but he wasn't the main guy in Dunkirk. I don't think. No, no, no. Um, uh, he was, I recognize him is all I'm saying is that I've mm-hmm. seen that, that guy before. There's, there's a lot of these Ty Sheridan looking guys going yeah, around yeah, yeah. <laughs> and that's what he looks like. He looks a little yeah. Ty Sheridan. He, so, yeah. Yeah. Um, 
but this is uh, this was this surprised me with uh, with how much I liked it. I actually watched it uh, for Nicole Kidman. We were, we were having a discussion about Nicole Kidman movies, and this is one that I hadn't seen that I really wanted to see. She is spectacular in this movie. Colin Farrell mm. will will captivate you. The Martin character will uh, have you thinking, uh, but her progression through this movie is absolutely phenomenal. And the, the ending is shocking and satisfying. I think uh, it's disturbing, but it's uh, it's good. I'm going to watch this movie again. Huh. Well, uh, I will be keeping it at, on Nashville resident Nicole Kidman. Um, and, uh, and recommend a movie I've seen a couple of times, but recently saw, uh, Dead Calm. Oh. And, um, uh, th- this movie is, uh, it's Philip Noyce who, uh, Noyce. Who, yeah, Noyce, Noyce who did Patriot Games and Clear and Present Danger and, um, a couple other really good ones. I think it was, what was the, uh, The Quiet American? Have you ever seen that? Uh, the Ooh, Michael Caine, Michael Caine, yeah, Michael Caine, Brendan Fraser movie. He did. That. Oh, I have seen that. Um, it's really good. Um, uh, but this stars Nicole Kidman, who's like twenty two, maybe even twenty one in that movie. Um, uh, with Sam Neill and Billy Zane of all people, Billy Zane. <laughs> Billy um, Zane, it's a walk off. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> this uh, this movie, I I I did not remember this. Uh, I must have like, I must have like, uh, uh, either forgotten or I've picked this movie up, uh, somewhere in the, uh, just after the beginning a couple of times, but I did not remember that this movie starts with Sam Neill coming home. He's, he's in the Navy. He's a Navy captain and he is being told that his wife is in his wife, Nicole Kidman, is in the hospital and his son has died. And, um, and we find out that Nicole Kidman was driving, uh, her son or their son in the car. And he managed to find a way to unsnap the buckle or seat at the seatbelt. And while she's getting, uh, upset about that and doesn't know where she can pull off to, to help to get him back in, she gets in a wreck and that kid goes through a windshield. I did not, I did not remember that it had started that way at all. I just remembered mm. the the all the boat stuff. This is the impetus behind them getting on the boat and saying, "Let's sort of, you know, start over, reboot, mm. all this." So they're out on the water, and three weeks, three weeks into this. Uh, ocean excursion they see a boat that uh they they haven't seen one for they haven't seen anything anybody for three weeks they see this boat i think they try to hail it nobody nobody's returning any anything but then they see that billy zane is on this little i guess it's a dinghy of some sort uh furiously paddling towards them sam neil the navy man is instantly uh suspicious of him and the story that he tells about what's happened on his boat, which is that he was with six other people and they all died of food poisoning. He doesn't believe that story. Um, Billy Zane goes and tries to sleep off whatever he's trying to sleep off and they lock him in. And Sam Neill leaves with Nicole Kidman by herself on this boat with the dude locked down in this uh, cabin. Sam Neill goes over to the boat and of course finds out that 
of course these people didn't die uh, of food poisoning. And now he needs to get back. The problem is, he, he, the problem what happens is, is he gets on this, he gets back on this boat to try to get back to get, get back to Nicole Kidman. Nicole Kidman has this at this point figured out that he's not who Billy Zane isn't who he says he is and is trying to go towards Sam Neill. But by this point, by the before they can even converge, Billy Zane is broken out of his cabin and they're in a fight. And Sam Neill, when he gets the boat close, jumps but misses uh, the boat and, mm. uh, and uh, so sets up this whole thing where Nicole Kidman is with Billy Zane trying to survive there. And Sam Neill has to get back to a boat that Billy Zane was on and finds out that it's sinking. And he, he is stuck at this point. Um, and it's a back and forth between Sam Neill needs to get back to Nicole Kidman. But Nicole Kidman needs to get back to Sam Neill to help him out. And Nicole Kidman's got a lot of like agency in this movie. Uh, you could tell that she is, you can tell that she's going to be a star, uh, from this movie. Uh, she's not the damsel in distress. She's, she's looking for ways to solve this problem. And, uh, and Billy Zane is to his, to his character's credit is not just a, I want to murder everybody type of asshole. Um, so he's not killing. He's not. There's no threat of that as long as she doesn't do anything completely out of line. Um, but it's a great thriller. It's a great. Uh, I, I, it's a. It's one of those movies that sort of gets lost in that whole Nicole Kidman filmography a lot of times. Uh, and she's got this shock of red hair that we don't. We haven't seen since maybe Far and Away. May have been the last time we've seen it. Um, hmm. I think that. I think that's her natural hair color and, uh, and, uh, we haven't seen that in forever. So she's, it's, she looks completely different in this movie and you can see the, you can see the star that she's about to become, even though it takes a little bit of time to get to that point. That's crazy. There's only, there's only three actors in this movie. It's just the three of them, right? Just three actors. Uh, I mean, Australian, are are they using their Australian? I, well, Sam Neill is New Zealand, but, are they using yeah. their Australian accent? Yeah, Nicole Kidman uh, has her normal accent. Sam Neill always sounds like—I mean, if that's a New Zealand accent, he he sounds like that every in every movie. I mean, it's Jurassic Park. Sam Neill, even well, I mean, I guess Hunt for October he's affecting a Russian accent mm. in that, but mm. but uh, he doesn't sound any. I think he sounds more New Zealandish in the Hunt for the Wilder People. Yeah. Uh, that, so I don't know if, I don't know if I'm just not detecting it in dead calm or if it's him trying to be American and he just, you know, it could be that. Um, but dead calm is just one of those movies. Yeah. It's, it's a, uh, it's great. It's a very simple 90 minutes, very brisk. Uh, go watch that shit. Yeah. Awesome. Awesome. Yeah. I'm going to warn a movie. I didn't finish watching. It's <laughs> <laughs> not the first time I've done this. I did go three fourths of the way through. Uh, this movie is 2019's The Kitchen. Oh, shit. Melissa McCarthy, <laughs> Tiffany Haddish, and uh, Elizabeth Moss. Have you seen this? No, I haven't. I just remember uh, we had this in a, one of our fall previews or something like that, The Kitchen, and it didn't have a trailer at the time. Oh, and uh, I found some other trailer for some other movie called The Kitchen that had Laura Prepon in it. Anyway, oh, that's right. Anyway, uh, 
uh, I, I, I'm not going to say, I'll let you uh, say what you're going to say about it, but I remember what this movie's about and everything. Uh, this movie is terrible. Um, and it's not just me. Rotten Tomatoes, 24%. IMDb, 5.4. Damn. Um, it is basically what Widows was, <laughs> only this movie can't decide where to land between comedy and drama. Uh, at times, it feels like a women's empowerment film, like a Thelma and Louise. Uh, at times, it feels like a slapstick comedy. Um, they have cast two comedians, Tiffany Haddish and Melissa McCarthy, and put them in the serious roles. They cast Elizabeth Moss and put her in. Now, her role has plenty of serious stuff, but she is the goofiest one of the whole crew. <laughs> Basically, the premise is this is, I don't know, the 60s, 70s, some fucking time when Irish businesses in uh, Hell's Kitchen would give money to gangsters for protection. Uh, Their husbands are all gangsters. They get pinched, uh, go away to jail. And the head gangster throws one envelope to each of the three women. And it's not enough money to cover one month's worth of bills. So they decide, as you do. (laughs) <laughs> let's go start taking over the payments. Let's go pick up the mob payments from these Italian businesses instead of the mob picking them up. Our husbands used to pick up the money. Let's just go pick up the money. And the way they convince these people to give them money is we're going to actually do something. You know, the, the mob hasn't done anything for you for years. You got robbed last year. The mob didn't do anything for you. They break out a broom and start sweeping at one what? restaurant. They're like, well, my, my boys will be here tomorrow to help paint the walls and whatnot. <clears throat> and so the ba- basically the movie goes, it's very much, you could take Hustlers, Widows, and this movie and, and put them on a triple bill. This would be the worst of all three of them. But it just, you know, they keep getting more and more businesses that give them the money instead of the mob. Then the mob gets mad. Then the mob puts out a hit on them. Um, and it's just hot fucking garbage the, especially when you're me and these days you look for a little moral redemption in your characters and the, you're still shaking down businesses i don't care that you're empowered women doing what your <laughs> husbands used to do you're basically stealing from a business by shaking them down like the yeah. mom i'm not gonna get behind that uh i stopped at about i don't know an hour and 20 minutes i was appalled at the averageness and uh i dare you to, to watch this movie. It's not a warn. It's a dare. This is one of those movies that comes out and you swear there is the genesis of one movie being pitched to a studio that they're going to turn down. And then they immediately turn to somebody and say, did you hear that pitch? I need you to get somebody to write that for me, but yeah. our way. Yeah. And, and, and we come out with it. Because this happens too often. There's no way that Widows in the Kitchen got made independently of each other without there being some sort of seed that grew one or the other. Yeah. And I'm I'm assuming that it was Widows that was first. Oh, I would and, too, yeah. And and not not we know that Widows came out first. I'm saying in the pitch process, Widows was the movie that was being pitched. And then that studio was like, oh, we'll make this. We'll call it The Kitchen. I can even tell you it probably was the fact that uh, McQueen wanted to put a lot of race element and dialogue in Widows. Mm-hmm. Like that whole one shot with Colin Farrell in the car as they go from, you know, this poor place where he gave his speech in his district, you know, two miles later at his mansion. And I bet a studio 
balked at that. He went on to sell it to somebody else, but that studio said, I want that, but without the racial stuff. Right. And let's set it in the 70s. Who <laughs> <laughs> was the third one? It's Elizabeth, Elizabeth Moss, Melissa McCarthy, uh, and who? Tiffany Haddish. Oh, yeah. Wow. Um, yeah, it was a weird. I think they're all miscast in this movie. That's crazy. Shrug. 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 <laughs> Shrug. Yeah, this was on the other day on HBO, and I was like, hey, it's that movie. I didn't watch it. Shut up. Like, hey, it's that movie. <laughs> <laughs> so. I, have one, I have one quick musical recommendation and one longer one. Uh, the first the quick one is uh, it's on Netflix right now. It's called Miles Davis, The Birth of the Cool. Uh, it's mm-hmm. a documentary about Miles Davis and uh, told from his perspective, uh, from his autobiography, cut in with his childhood friends and uh, how he's how he progressed through his career, especially overcoming a heroin addiction, things like that. Uh, it's fascinating. It's amazing. Could not recommend it more. <clears throat> but speaking of musical innovators, I did catch the uh, Grammys Prince tribute called Let's Go Crazy that aired uh, last week. It's on CBS Online Plus, whatever the fuck it's called. Uh, Peacock, whatever. Uh, I, I have high standards when I come to, uh, Prince content and I figured this was going to be hokey as hell because every Prince tribute up until now from the Grammys after he died, where Bruno Mars did, I think purple rain and tried to approximate a guitar solo like Prince, uh, to where Usher in this most recent Grammys, uh, tried to do when doves cry, I say, try to do, they successfully did them. Uh, but it, it, it just didn't work. Uh, he did When Doves Cry with a- FKA Twigs, who was a phenomenal performer who just danced, basically, and did a pole dance for him. Now, they actually included footage of that in this special, uh, but I, my expectations were very, very low. It was hi- hosted by Maya Rudolph, uh, of all people, uh, who was, of course, very, very funny. Uh, Fred Armisen comes in later on uh, and uh, and is very, very funny, too. Interesting thing about this is the musical director was Sheila E, who uh, played percussion with Prince for multiple iterations from New Power Generation to his other band to all the way up until uh, he had his three uh, female band, uh, three piece female band that was backing him up in the in the, the right before he died. And so Sheila E had her hands on everything. And you could tell this was amazing. Uh, this absolutely exceeded my expectations. Uh, they came out and, and, and did a, a fascinating uh, opening number of Let's Go Crazy with, uh, with her. Uh, Chris, I think you're a fan of, of her, H-E-R, um, and uh, Gary Clark Jr., who's an interesting guitarist, and I'll come back to that in a second. Uh, and uh, they went into Miguel. You remember the R&B uh, singer Miguel, who's, I think, way underrated. He is D'Angelo-level uh, performer and singer to me. He did I Would Die For You, which was fantastic. And then it went on to a murderer's row of St. Vincent doing Controversy, uh, of Foo Fighters coming back and doing Darling Nikki, which they said they hadn't done in 20 years. They Damn. said Prince didn't like it. He said, <laughs> so we did this uh, and uh, we love doing it, uh, but Prince apparently didn't like it, so we stopped doing it. <laughs> and, so, and then he turned back around he's like, but we're going to do it tonight. And then they started yeah. playing. <laughs> and it was loud and it was boisterous and it was fantastic. Uh, after that, uh, her came out again. And I swear to God, I don't know how familiar you guys are with Purple Rain, the album or the, the movie. 
but there's a song on there called The Beautiful Ones, uh, which is is the piano bound, the baby, 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 uh, that turns into Prince writhing around on the floor. Do you want him or do you want me? Because I want you. Uh, and it's a huge part of the movie, and it's a very affecting piece of music. And her is a tremendous talent. She did this song in a completely different way, but Misty Copeland, the ballerina, came out and did an amazing routine to this song. It was visually arresting. Her could not have killed it more. Uh, it, I, at this point, I'm floored, right? At this point, I'm like, fuck it. Stop it. Everything's everything's good. Just stop it right there. Everything's fine. Then you had Beck come out and do Raspberry <laughs> Beret. Then you had uh, then you had Mavis fucking Staples doing Purple Rain. Uh, then you had all. Then you had Sheila E. do a percussive breakdown of her like three hits basically. Then you had more stay in the motherfucking time <laughs> come out and do and do the bird and cool and uh and uh jungle love and, and then I swear Bentley God, came out. <laughs> I swear to God. Morris Morris Day and Jerome have not aged a day in the last like what 1984 uh 26 36 years. Uh mm-hmm. it's it's amazing. And you know they're out there doing the dances from 1984. This absolutely hit my heart. Uh, oh, oh! The last thing is Chris Martin and Susanna Hoffs. Speaking of somebody who doesn't age, Susanna yeah. Hoffs from the Bangles uh, the did bangle. manic did manic Monday, uh, which uh, of course Prince wrote um, and uh, and gave to the Bangles. Uh, the low point, of course, of the the night was uh, Usher. Uh, not Usher was uh, John Legend. <laughs> You just you just wanted to say that, right? They couldn't have been the low point, right? Was, Come on. It, no, no, no. The low point was that rehash of the Usher doing When Doves Cry. But John Legend did nothing compares to you. Now, appreciably, there's nothing wrong with what he did. There's okay. nothing wrong whatsoever. He hit all the notes. He he came out with no shirt, but but like a blazer and, you know, whatever, man boobs. Mm-hmm. But like it, like it, it just it it doesn't work. It doesn't work for me. It's it's like watching Ryan Gosling play those weird little electronic keys. It doesn't work for me. The rest of it was fantastic. Anyway, oh. the last thing I want to say about this is uh, I mentioned Gary Clark Jr., who's commonly regarded with maybe John Mayer, Trey Anastasio, a few other uh, uh, middle-aged guys now as being one of the best guitarists of all time, or not no of all time of of this time, right? Uh, he is a, a blues guitarist. Uh, he can really get after it. He tried to play uh, a few of the solos that, that Prince would play uh, during during his stuff, especially in the uh, uh, Let's Go Crazy montage in the beginning. It, it hammered home how there will never, ever, ever be somebody like Prince. I've watched, obviously, a lot of, of Prince videos over the years. I've never seen anyone as effortless on a guitar as Prince uh, during a guitar solo. He would make the faces and he would be, you know, he'd get into it and all that stuff, but he would play with one hand. He, he, he wouldn't even pick. He would just sound it out on the fretboard and it would sound like he's just shredding and he's going, he would play atonal notes that shouldn't go together and he would just do it effortlessly. When you, when you see Gary Clark Jr. and even Wendy from the revolution who ended up playing later on, and she actually ripped that uh, Purple Rain solo. You could tell them working at it. They're working. 
You know, you know how you, Jeremy used to play guitar where like if you're playing a guitar solo, like you're really having to pay attention to where your where your right hand is, where the picking is and stuff like that. Never saw that with Prince. And I've never they seen anybody do that. They should have got Johnny Lang. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know, uh, Johnny Lang would have been a good choice. Uh, the the only other person that I'd say would even come close to Prince would be Stevie Ray Vaughan, strangely enough. But even Stevie Ray Vaughan, who never missed a note, that was what I always appreciate appreciated about him, never missed a note, always looked like he was paying attention, always looked like he was working at it. And I do appreciate that. But there's there's a certain ease in which Prince, who, by the way, was like dancing and doing splits and heels while he's doing this and singing, while he's doing these guitar solos, there was some sort of just it was it was so natural that I I don't think we'll ever see it again. And if we do, uh, we should hang on to them and keep the drugs away from them, for God's sake. What is uh, what is it called again? It's called Let's Go Crazy, uh, the Prince uh, Grammy tribute. And absolutely uh, could not recommend it more. It's just it, it blew my mind that they would get these performers that got the essence of it. They don't, they weren't trying to do Prince impressions. They got the essence of the music. Is it a good production? Like, like the, the, the actual visuals of it presented? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, there were, there were a few times like uh, back when he did raspberry beret, they had the, you, if you remember that, that video, it was a lot of like psychedelic, like flowers in the background and like whites and, and purples and uh, yellows and stuff like that. They had that as a background, but otherwise it was fairly stark besides the misty Copeland coming up, excuse me, to do the, uh, the ballet routine. Cause there were the, there's, there's a couple of things similar like I don't know if I've seen a whole concert and tribute to somebody before, but like uh, two different times I've seen people getting honored in a uh, a show. John Williams had like a two hour thing yeah, uh, a couple that, years yeah. ago, and uh, Dave Chappelle has one on Netflix right now where he gets the Mark Twain Award, mm-hmm. um, and those productions are so shoddy, man. Oh um, no, this is this is a, a completely different animal. Yeah, I mean there there's so many times where you can tell that 20 minutes of the uh the show that evening got cut out to get to that reaction shot or to get some other uh, you know other thing. It's just it's just so low rent. I just I like they got, you know, Jerry who just learned Adobe Premiere to cut it or something. <laughs> um, <laughs> no, you could tell this is obviously before you know, any of the, the disease hit and the, the pandemic hit. Uh, but uh, you could tell this is Grammy level production value. That's um, good to hear. I'll, I'm, I'll, I'll watch this. This, this sounds really awesome. Uh, it, 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 it's exactly what I needed uh, to, and this was a late night thing to uh, probably kept my poor family out because I had it jacked up because it was so awesome. <laughs> Uh, what were you going to say, Jeremy? You going to say something? Oh, nothing important. No, I was uh, going to make another wise ass joke. Oh, you're like, well, why didn't they get like you know the Blues Brothers to come on? The show? I was going to say which. I was going to ask which Prince song did BTS cover, but <laughs> that would be interesting, actually. Uh, no, all the uh, all the performances do, uh, are great. They should do that. Uh, oh shit, I'm forgetting my Prince songs. Doesn't he have that nasty song about fucking? That's what BTS should do. 
<laughs> Doesn't he have like a filthy song about fucking? He does. He has several. He's got a million fucking. Isn't one of them like pretty overt? Like, let's fuck. There's the there's, uh, there's pussy control. Oh, that's what I was thinking of. But there's another one. I think you're thinking of get off. Oh, uh, get off. Yeah, get off. <laughs> you got to have a mother for me to move your big ass around this way so I can work on that zipper, baby. I was thinking of Kiss. BTS needs to do Kiss. Yeah, they I'm didn't do Kiss. They didn't do... But they should do it in Korean. <laughs> yes. <laughs> they played they that song. A filthy song about fucking... <laughs> the other day on uh, on Epic Awesome Videos, what's the song that they're they're currently playing right now? I think you did a Sins video on it. BTS? Oh, yeah. it's called On? Yeah. They played On, and then it got done, and they played it again right after that. Were they two separate videos, or were they the same they video? They were the same video. In fact, I thought that once it got... Once the, the next video started... It was just, oh, yeah, there's that part where they have a break and then they get back into the song. And I was like, oh, wait a minute. No, this is the beginning of the fucking music video. Such is it the one thing. where they're in the L.A. River or is it the the one that's that goes back and forth? Yeah. locations? I think so. I think it's the L.A. River one. Yeah. Because, yeah, the there's one that's two like a big ones. epic looking production. Do you want to do one, one question? Question. Question. I got something to say. I am listening. We can do one question, sure. Do okay. a quick one. Uh, let's go to a question. Which movies that primarily take place in one location, such as 12 Angry Men, man, man, <laughs> such as 12 Angry Men or The Wall, do you like or dislike? That now, does remind caveat, me. By the way, I forgot that The Wall takes place really in one spot in, in Pink's like apartment, right? Because the rest is in his head. Are you? I think they may be talking about another wall. Oh yeah, it, it can't be Pink Floyd the wall. There's a lot of locations in Pink Floyd the wall. I think the they're wall. talking about maybe the Doug Lyman the wall. 2013. Oh wait, well, it's a 2017. Like the, the Matt Damon one, right? That's no, that's the Great Wall. This is just the wall. Doug Lyman, 2017. Two American soldiers are trapped by a lethal sniper with an only an unsteady wall between them. Interesting. I haven't seen that. Have you? Yeah, I have not either. I remember it. Uh, I remember we may have previewed it or something. We may have mentioned it or whatever. But I think huh. that's the movie he's talking about. Pink Floyd, the wall has numerous locations in it. Sure. Even though, even though it does have... Uh, the you know it is maybe possibly going on inside his head uh the entire time um uh but anyway uh a couple that i came up with on this uh of course buried is uh is completely in a coffin the entire time mm -hmm, mm -hmm. um and it's a really good one uh, i think i even recommended it on a previous episode jeremy may have even recommended it at one point i'm not even so. sure um Glen Gary Glen Ross has a couple of locations in it mm -hmm. but it is essentially that premier properties place where most of everything happens. They do have a Chinese restaurant that they go to. There's a car scene and there is a scene where uh, Jack Lemon is trying to pitch Bruce Altman uh that that land while his wife is gone and everything. There is that one Thing there but for the most part that movie takes place in the office knives out is pretty much all in that mansion even though there mm. is an excursion 
where they go off and drive through the little town and, and there's a laundromat and everything. Um, I like all of these movies. And then green room, uh, basically takes place all in this one bar, even though there are a couple of locations in that as well. But for the most part, it's this band who have unwittingly decided to take a gig at a Nazi bar and they're going to be there for, for the remainder of the movie. Hate it when that happens. I hate Ah. it too, man. Every time when I was in a band, it seemed like some asshole would book us for a Nazi bar. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my God. What do you think? Uh, I wrote down a bunch, but I'm going off script and I'm going to say arsenic and old lace. Yeah. Um, Which is one of my very favorite movies ever. They do have a scene in the beginning at the courthouse getting their marriage license. Uh, But basically, 99.9% of this movie takes place in this house uh, of these two crazy old ladies who are killing people. Uh, Mm. It's one of my very favorite movies ever. Um, It's probably one one of the movies that young me learned hey black and white movies aren't so bad um <laughs> it's hysterical i did this play in college as well uh so it has a special place in my heart uh but yeah all one location i also wrote down lock which is like buried is all in, in a car mm-hmm. uh what's the other one i wrote down that i wanted to say uh assault on precinct 13 is pretty much oh yeah all, yeah all yeah. in that one police precinct uh both versions mm-hmm. <clears throat> i haven't seen that first version the second version is ethan hawk and uh who is Larry the, F. Larry oh, Fishburne. Larry Fishburne, uh, which mm-hmm. I really, really liked. Uh, Carpenter did the first one, right? He did. Yeah. Uh, you guys have seen that one? I have, I but it's have been a while. not seen the original. I saw the remake. Um, did you like the remake? I thought right. it was actually pretty decent. I thought so, too. All right. going to have to yeah. check that out. Sure. Uh, okay. I chose Clerks. And oh, Yeah. I really like the idea of Clerks because when you think about it, the, the, the way that he used uh, – Kevin Smith used that space, he made it feel a lot bigger than it is, right? Because he's shooting it at different angles within the quick stop. He's shooting it from counter to back. He's shooting it from directly at the counter. He's shooting it at the door. He's shooting it behind the counter. He's shooting it outside with Jay and Silent Bob and Berserker and all that stuff, making fuck. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. occasionally, like, he'll he'll go over to the uh, the video store, which is attached. So he's got, like, what, like, maybe 1,200 square feet to work with, most of which mm-hmm. is filled with, like, merchandise. Uh, so I think he did – plus the roof, using the rooftop scene for that, uh, that hockey uh, sequence. So I think he made a, an excellent use of space. Uh, the only time that they venture out is when they go to the funeral, mm-hmm. and even then – it's just them in the back of the car. Who knows? They probably just drove around the block just with Kevin Smith in the back seat going literally back and forth <laughs> to, uh, to Dante and Randall. Uh, so I really appreciate how much of a use of space they get from such a small area in that, in that little confined space. That's one of those all time make a movie stories that clerks yeah. to, you know, I mean, I can't remember. It's one of those movies where the budget for it fluctuates every time you hear about it and everything. I think it was seventy thousand, and uh, he maxed out his credit cards and and basically just took that quick stop and like shot late at night, you know, midnight to seven or something like that, until the the store had to open again, and you know, 
Just, it really uh, is amazing, this the, the stuff. I mean, and it endures. I mean, I just watched this maybe a year ago or something like that, and it was just as fresh as, you know, when I watched it the first time. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, lo-fi, low-budget. It's not like I go back to something like Pi and watch that over and over again. This is yeah. genuinely entertaining, low-budget stuff that makes really good use of space. The only other one that I put down is uh, – the elevator that they use in the movie Devil, yeah, uh, which is oh. uh, claustrophobic, but they shoot it in a way. I guess they've got cameras in all four corners of the top of the uh, the, the elevator car, and then on the door, and then some on the floor itself, shooting up, um, and some shooting straight down when they're trying to get out through the top. Uh, that is a, a really affecting movie, particularly good around Halloween. Good twist. Uh, sneaky M. Night Shyamalan script, and uh, it's really, really good. I like it. I like yeah. it a lot. All right. Um, that'll do it for this week. Uh, go to Sincast presented by CinemaSins on Facebook. We also have a CinemaSins Twitter, Music Video Sins Twitter. We're on SoundCloud. We also have a Discord. If you want to get on Discord, go to our Reddit page and find the link on the right side, or you can go to Facebook and private message me, and I'll give you a link there. But that will do it for this week. It's Chris Atkins and Jeremy Scott and Barrett Share. We'll see you next time. Thanks for listening. Comment on our episodes on our SoundCloud page. Check us out on YouTube, Twitter, Facebook, and Reddit. And be sure to visit cinemasins.com. Endgame is such a weird movie. People, people just decided, "Fuck it, I'm not, I'm not gonna think about this movie at all. I'm not gonna pay attention to anything. Mm-hmm. I'm just gonna go with it because they're, uh, you know, they have all their fan service, and mm-hmm. the rest can eat a dick, I guess. Yeah, and yeah. the rest can eat a dick. Uh, yeah. Uh. <laughs> Did you like your uh, your uh, moniker, Jeremy? I did. You must have noticed my shirt. <laughs> yeah. My shirt. See, Jeremy. My wife said, I like that shirt. It reminds me of young Jeremy. <laughs> we will be for so much more. Yeah. <laughs> Jeremy hey, dares you to move. Don't mock or I will come through the screen like that girl in the ring. And I will. That would be an amazing horror conceit to have somebody come through the the TV screen like Samara from the ring because someone doesn't like Switchfoot. Uh, it's a hard movie to explain, but once you see it, you totally get it. <laughs> yeah. I'll tell you what. Um, nobody ever made more noise as a three-piece band than all the concerts I've ever seen in my life than Switchfoot. Now, this really? is early Switchfoot because by their second tour, they'd added a fourth guy, and now I think they to play with six or seven piece band. But when Jeez. they first started out, it was the two brothers and uh, the friend, just basically electric guitar, bass guitar and drums. And it sounded like a five piece band, man. They fucking rock live. I'm telling you, man, you can do that. You know, I mean, black keys I saw a long time ago and they're a two piece and they made a ridiculous amount of noise. White stripes. I saw back in Cincinnati in 1999 and they were loud as fuck. Like uh, Nirvana, obviously, so, <laughs> it's a weird example. Silverchair 
You remember those oh, yeah. motherfuckers? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Wait, they were loud as crap. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Very hard to drink. <laughs> <laughs> Man, you think that money <laughs> isn't everything. You know what's funny about them? Uh, you know, he was like 15, uh, the lead singer was, when that mm-hmm. album came out. Wow, I didn't and know that. And it sucked. I, I thought it sucked. I thought it just lyrically... It's like fingers on chalkboard, like 16 stone was for me. But then their next couple albums are really good. Like he's a super talented songwriter. I don't know if they're still together. It may still be. Yeah. They had Uh, a song that was on uh, Sirius XM about 10 years ago um, called straight lines. That was really good. Oh yeah. I heard that. Yeah. It was good. Completely different from what was in the nineties. Totally. Yeah, they're different. not really. Yeah, they're not really that aesthetic anymore. Which is funny. <laughs> you don't find that aesthetic anymore, right? The closest no, I found, it's like grunge, right? It's like. Yeah, did Chris? Did you ever see a? Uh, it's a local band I saw in Chicago, actually, called Bully. It's a three-piece woman-fronted band called Bully. Mm-mm. I saw them at the Aragon Ballroom in uh, Chicago. And they are straight up Nirvana, whole, like, grunge-ass, like, power pop type of uh, uh, aesthetic. And it was awesome. <laughs> it was just like, it was like walking back into, I don't know, a bikini kill show or like a fucking, or like a whole show. Yeah. Except without the, the, well, actually, she's blonde and foxy, but she didn't have the heroin, aesthetic, heroin chic Thing. I was going to say her whole thing was always about being dirty and gross and uglying yeah. herself up on purpose. And, you know, I get that from a mental standpoint. My penis doesn't understand it. Right. right. You're like the Seinfeld playing chess with your penis. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> You'll never beat me. <laughs> not even, I don't even, it's not even a discussion. My penis is just like, no, dude, no, we're not even yeah. going to talk about that. <laughs> <laughs> oh dude it's the best <laughs> they're so grateful <laughs> they're like, can I sleep up for <laughs> that is such a crushing part of that movie yeah you know because he's just broken up with Sandra O. Oh. he's like I got my stuff together it's their last night and he's yeah. and he's going back in. Yeah. And then he has to go get the wallet back. <laughs> oh man. I can't fuck uh. this up, Miles. <laughs> like Sam Sam all naked. <laughs> What's funny is that the the boyfriend is having sex with her, hasn't he? Yeah. When when he yeah, goes back, he goes in, and sneaks in, and they're fucking. When and aren't right? they talking about like they the, are the previous dude? Oh my yeah, god, yeah, they are. Mm-hmm. Oh jeez, that and then he runs up. out with his dick hanging out, right? Like yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, he yeah. goes right up against the. Uh, it's like a pop star moment where the dick is right up against the car. Oh yeah, yeah. I can see your doodle. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I really enjoyed how they laid it out. Uh, have you seen Bad Education? You've seen Bad Education, right, Barrett? Yeah. Oh, I have right. not. Uh, I have not yet. You have not? Okay. Mm-mm. Well, it's just the way they presented it, because they have uh, Hugh Jackman as this character for a long time, and then you just, like, it sort of changes 
uh, in midway through and everything. And I like how they do that. What did you think of it? Uh, it's on my list to discuss as a record warn. I think, um, overall, I felt like it should have been a sharp objects, uh, limited series instead mm. of uh, a movie, because I felt like it was racing, uh, once yeah. it started going, um, but I just wanted, before I talked about it on the pod, I wanted to make sure I didn't step on your opinion. If you were like a plus perfect movie, whatever. I just no, I think we, I think you had tweeted. In fact, the night before we did that mini pod and Jonathan brought up <coughs> your tweets and I was like, yeah, if they had done six episodes on this, they would have been able to explore a lot of things better. Um, and we would have gotten a, a, a sort of a hint of the actual criminal. I mean, you know, they just, I mean, they just basically come out and tell you um, they used these companies that were fake companies to to get their money and everything. But it would have been nice to see that operation in in motion and everything. Yeah. Um, and and like ha- how they decided before all of it started, how they were going to cover it up and yeah, all of that. It would have been nice to <laughs> to really get a feel of the the thing. So, but yeah, if you're going to use it, you're going to tell that story in an hour and fifty minutes or whatever, then you probably have to do it exactly the way they did it in this. Yeah. Um, yeah. The guy who wrote it was actually a part of that school system. He met that dude before he even wrote that before that. That's crazy. Yeah. I didn't know that. Um, That's awesome. Yeah. I did a bunch of like little side research on that movie while I was watching it. Side research. All right. I like to do stuff on the side, but it's (laughs) not. Yeah, man. Totally. Let's do a question. I feel, I'm feeling a little horny. Okay. Prince talk. That's right. All that, that dirty fucking. Song. All that dirty fucking. <laughs> no, get off in erotic city and sexy motherfucker. And it, that whole phase could have easily have described what you were talking about. <laughs> uh, and I love all those. Uh, sexy motherfucker. There's a, there's a part in, uh, in sexy motherfucker, which is, it's a long song, but it's fan, fantastic. He goes through, he's like, you sexy motherfucker. And then he goes through, you know, all the, the guitar riffs and everything. And he's like, horn stand, please. And then they start playing the, the horny stuff and all that stuff. And, uh, the horny. Yeah. And then, uh, and then it breaks down into like, I, somebody who sounds like Chuck D, where he's like, sexy motherfucker shaking that ass. Shaking that ass. Shaking that ass. <laughs> Three sessions ago or something like that, when I was in really bad shape, she was like, hi, Barrett. How are you? And I went off on like a five paragraph, like, well, I'm a fucking disaster right now. (laughs) I feel like shit. (laughs) I want to bury my head in the sand. Everything sucks. And by the end of it, I was like, oh, so how have you been? (laughs) 